0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to today's FS Club seminar. This is the third that we've done online with our resident expert, uh, Dr. David Doyle, uh, who's an EU financial services policy expert and board member of the Kangaroo Group, uh, part of the EU parliament. Now David has given us for many years in FS Club an update on EU financial services regulation every January and sometimes uh, in other months, but in every January and we're so delighted that he's kindly uh, agreeing with uh, to continue that tradition with us today. We'll come on to that in just a moment. Now you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli, I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it really is a privilege to be able to do uh, so many of these uh, fantastic webinars. We range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance, and we can only do so because we have such generous and kind sponsors who are equally intellectually curious and you can see the names of many of them there but again quite naturally they span technology economics and finance now this uh session today is just a little bit parochial for for those of us who are dialing in from the americas or from asia uh the, the little issue of britain's role in the world will feature but more importantly the eu uh shorn of the UK. As a member of the EU, we are now facing a new world, and we're starting to see some of the dim outlines of that. Well, we're seeing the dim outlines, but David sees the sharp outlines, uh, and he's good at it. So just before we start, I had a a quick quiz for everyone, uh, just to get the turn of the audience. And we might ask this at the end, uh, but we're one year out from Brexit, and the quiz question today is a fairly straightforward one. Uh, Do you think uh, that the effect Brexit has had on UK financial (laughs) services has been good, has been indifferent, or has been bad? Now, while you're voting, I'll just get the little bits of housekeeping out of the way. Yes, the slides will be posted. Yes, the recording will be up in about two working days, so uh, uh, quite probably uh, Friday afternoon. And uh, please do participate in the discussion that we're going to have with David for about 20 minutes. After he's made his formal presentation, but to do that, please use the chat room here on the webinar question and answer facility, because I'm here with you, uh, not on WhatsApp, not on Signal, uh, not on email. Well, here we go. Uh, there you go, David. You've got a very Brexit skeptical audience: uh, six <laughs> percent thinking it's good, 40% thinking it is indifferent, and a slight majority of 53 thinking the effect has been bad. It was a pretty crude question but i thought it would just help set the tone with no more ado if i may david the floor is very much yours
1: thank you michael and good afternoon to each and one of you who are turning out in very big numbers i'm uh, reassured so welcome Uh, well we started the year in the european union Grabbling with um, supply disruptions, unexpected higher inflation, record government debt. And now, to add to our woes, a fully blown energy crisis in the making, as a result of the EU-Russian standoff over Ukraine, which is driving gas prices um, up uh, by something like 37% alone since the uh, end of uh, November. But on a more optimistic note, the European economies are indeed emerging from from COVID lockdowns. And the European Commission has forecast that GDP in the EU and indeed in the Eurozone combined over this year uh, will be around about four and a quarter percent, which is not bad. However, it is becoming very clear in Brussels and Frankfurt circles that corporate debt has reached critical levels. The upshot is that additional debt uh, that was being offered by the ECB and by governments, central banks across Europe throughout the pandemic, for very laudable reasons, has left many EU corporate sectors uh, very vulnerable uh, to insolvencies. And less likely, of course, to um, meet the additional hiring and investment ambitions they've set out. Now, the European Union, of course, has also put aside its fiscal rules. The so called Stability and Growth uh, Pact has put it on ice in the, uh, during the pandemic uh, in order to allow for massive fiscal stimulus. Again, uh, a very laudable uh, measure in itself. But with the eco- economic output now bouncing back, hopefully, and hopefully in a more substantial and sustainable, uh, sustainable level, uh, we can expect to return to the pre-crisis um, levels of growth perhaps before the end of this year, uh, pending of course, uh, no further escalation of problems uh, in in the in the eastern part of Europe uh, vis-a-vis uh, Russia. But the EU, EU fiscal rules are expected to be formally reinstated in 2023, with perhaps some minor adjustments to exclude certain uh, longer-term investment uh, expenditures uh, which have yet to be defined. But the widespread expectation is that Brussels has no plans at the moment to get serious about uh, mounting debt levels. We're not quite out of the crisis yet. And then, of course, there is the inflation dilemma where the EU appears to be pursuing a distinctly different approach to that of the United States, which has pencilled in um, three interest hikes alone this year. Uh, Here, the ECB has repeatedly stressed, and again earlier this week, that it will stick to its so-called sequencing model. That is to say, they're first bringing the quantitative easing, uh, the massive uh, bond purchasing program, uh, to an end before considering any race hikes, at least uh, this year. Even if the pace of EC asset purchases do uh, decline over the next couple of months, a tightening monetary policy over this year looks, to me, looks very, very unlikely. Now, it is in this challenging context that I the eu uh, institutions are taking stock of the regulatory environment as it settles down to a life without the united kingdom and it's all important uh, financial capital in london over the past two years as we'll see from the ensuing presentation uh, the eu has embarked on a multi-dimensional approach to regulation that encompasses the cultivation and development of a strategic autonomy uh, approach model aimed at reducing the EU's uh, over-reliance, as it describes it, to uh, non-EU partners covering everything from pharmaceutical ingredients, especially generic medicines, to semiconductors, and from security to financial services. It's um, doing this, of course, in a, in a context, as I said earlier, in a background of significant geopolitical uh, and economic distractions, notably the uh, the security of gas supplies, where the EU relies for 40% on gas supplies coming coming from Russia. So, despite the uh, reemergence of the COVID variant, the tepid revival of any sustainable economic growth and the departure of the UK from the EU as the host of, and still the host of, Europe's leading financial centre, the EU is forging ahead with some game-changing and very innovative regulatory initiatives. Key drivers here that you'll have heard about, highlighted in the media, include making the EU a carbon-neutral region by 2050 and reducing emissions by at least... 55% by 2030, not very far away from that, as well as putting digitalization at the heart of all government, corporate, and civil society plans. The expectation is that financial services will play a particularly crucial role in all of this uh, going forward. So let's um, have a look at the uh, key ingredients of these game changing and uh, innovative, and I would go as far as saying uh, benchmark-setting initiatives that the EU have embarked upon over the last two years. It would be amiss of me not to mention perhaps one of the most important, uh, namely the New Generation Initiative. This was the recovery funding programme, which has now been approved by all of the 27 new member states. Uh, which will encompass uh, from last year, 2020, until 2027. It's based on the raising of some 750 billion euros, now nearly 800 billion, actually, of a recovery fund for the first time in the history of the EU. Uh, The EU will uh, act as a capital-raising entity, unlike the practice in the past where each individual sovereign state uh, raised its own funding. The important factor here is that these fundings will be allocated to all of the EU member states to help them recover uh, from the mauling of the COVID 19 uh, crisis. Interestingly, uh, a distinct allocation of 37% of this funding uh, will be allocated to climate investments. Uh, notably um, renovation of buildings to provide more energy-saving devices, uh, uh, electrical and hydrogen uh, transport, uh, and also renewable uh, uh, energy-type investments. In short, a green investment plan, 37%, a huge amount. Uh, And another 20% will be allocated to so-called digital uh, transformation. Everything from developing an an EU crowd uh, uh, system uh, to the full digitalization of all aspects of EU financial services with a digital ID being envisaged very, very soon uh, to enable citizens to at long last start investing across across borders, which they haven't been doing uh, to a great uh, level of uh, um, activity up to now. Um, it should be mentioned also that you know this 800 billion, if you add the the multilateral uh, budget for the seven-year traditional seven-year uh, program, uh, we're up to one point, nearly 1.3 trillion uh, euros to be allocated to the EU over the next uh, six and a half years. I, you know, somehow this is of course laudable. It's commendable but it pales in the significance compared to what the US has been capable of doing. It's built back better economic package worth $1.7 um, trillion, the stimulus bill, a separate one, $1.9 trillion, and the uh, infrastructure package of 1.2 trillion uh, euros. Clearly, um, this is one of the reasons that has led the EU to, as early as last summer, to start discussions seriously with the EU member states about additional sources of funding and what is very clearly going to emerge is some form of carbon tax particularly on imported carbon products uh, steel uh, cement being the most uh, prominent amongst these there's also talk about reviving the uh, financial transaction tax even if it's at a modest level And other forms of taxes there's also talk about uh, reforming and recalibrating uh, the uh, trading uh, the trading emissions uh, system as well uh, for all uh, commodities so quite visibly this debate is not over extra funding will have to be raised and it's quite clear that the majority of member states seem to be relatively in favor of uh, raising at least a carbon tax Uh, as we go forward now the other big issue on the agenda strategic autonomy Uh, the commission um, early last year january of last year uh, issued a um, paper entitled strategic autonomy where it used words and i quote excessive reliance over reliance in some cases on non-eu providers of microchips defense generic medicines but also financial services on this particular paper uh, strategic autonomy uh, looked at specific uh, areas and measures that could be taken to reduce the over reliance, as the Commission describes it, on third country or non EU financial service entities from uh, across the world. A number of areas were uh, looked into, uh, such as um, uh, the derivatives clearing space, uh, derivatives trading. Uh, the fact that many uh, non-EU banks have a lion's share of the Dollar FX uh, trading space, etc., etc. And indeed, uh, the Commission uh, is working with uh, the ECB uh, on a range of measures to reduce this uh, over-reliance factor. The other area that has kicked in um, is the concerns Long-standing, I have to say, even before the, the Brexit or even before Brexit, indeed, and even before the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, was this notion of how non-EU banks and investment firms uh, manage their clients, their assets, which are which are based in the EU. Sometimes they operate remotely, uh, and there is a very clear direction of travel here. Uh, on the part of the ECB, and perhaps privately by the uh, European Commission, uh, to uh, encourage, at least initially, uh, more non-EU banks, um, investment firms, uh, to um, set up a, a permanent operational basis somewhere in the EU member states, either as a subsidiary or as a, a branch uh, going forward. And in any event, uh, there will need to be, Particularly in the context of AFMD uses and method revisions, there will have to be at least uh, two permanent members from a resident in the EU working in some location in the EU on behalf of this third-country financial institution, amongst amongst other issues. Of course, back-to-back booking issues are back in the frame as well. In short. We're looking, uh, the EU is looking to ensure that there is a substantive level of presence of by third country financial institutions who wish to operate across the EU in various areas, whether it be commercial banking, investment banking, derivatives um, or or trading and clearing and and, uh, and related matters. Um, Again, the EU is quietly strengthening its rules vis-a-vis financial services uh, that do business uh, from abroad remotely in the 27 uh, they need to do so without uh, having uh, to um, uh, sometimes set up a permanent basis in Europe clearly this physical presence uh, with operational staff as a subsidiary or a branch is going to be uh, a, a uh, uh, a, a a condition sine qua non going forward now let's turn to the two innovative um game-changing pieces of innovation here and i speak uh, of the digital strategy and uh, the the uh, various uh, aspects of this uh, huge piece of uh, legislation uh, back in 2020, I think it was, September 2020, the EU issued its uh, EU digital strategy. Um, It looked at a range of issues, again, to do two things. One, to drive home and accelerate the pace of digitalization across all aspects of financial services, from banks to investments to uh, uh, new forms of investment. Uh, through remote uh, means uh, on the internet with the normal safeguards but also to reduce the over-reliance again on third uh, country uh, financial institutions now statistic i think puts this in perspective less than three percent of european union citizens actually invest across borders this uh, contrasts usually of course with the united states where people have a single market have a single currency and there is a a real single financial services market which we are still struggling to uh, create despite the laudable attempts of the capital markets union but clearly uh, the digitalization move will create the basis for uh, digital IDs which will enable citizens to be able to cross borders digitally uh, expand their portfolio of investments um, with the necessary guarantees and safeguards and also built-in anti-money laundering uh, um, the measures to ensure that you know, they, they are uh, acting within the, the remit of uh, all of the anti-money laundering directives. The other factor that's driving this um, is the very low proportion of European citizens that actually invest in equities, whereas in the United States, Over 50% of the average US uh, household has at least some uh, equities in the portfolio. This figure drops to 25% on average in the EU, most of it concentrated in the Nordic states, um, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, etc. And as we move further down the geographical uh, map in Europe, these figures drop quite sizably and significantly to sometimes 10%, like Ireland has only 1% of households that actually hold any equities. This is a problem for, for the EU. They believe that if the citizens are to boost their uh, non-statutory pensions, they need to start investing now, diversifying their investments across borders, uh, and digitalisation is going to help this, particularly if they go towards building up and scaling up their investments in in equity financing. And indeed, the ESMA is working on plans to try and make this whole uh, equity space much more interesting. It's it's very much to go to the core of the Capital Markets Union revisions as we speak uh, where the Commission is looking not necessarily at replicating traditional uh bank funding but you know ensuring that there's more uh, equity type funding and spreading this to a wider spectrum of investors beyond um uh, institutional investors private equity pension funds etc but probably one of the most important aspects and there are many aspects but the one that really does has attracted my attention is the markets in crypto assets regulation again a, uh, a a real game changer very few other regions in the world including the us have gone as far as this and what this does is to create something similar to MIFID. indeed all um crypto assets uh and coins etc that don't exist within the MiFID uh, eligible assets category will be now uh, regulated onto the markets in crypto assets regulation. <clears throat> the scope includes all asset reference tokens like the Libra basket, uh, coin, backed by a basket of currencies to facilitate global payments. The e-money token, particularly a particularly popular one for dollar base to US uh, DC and USDTs. The utility tokens like uh, Filecoin, Basic Attention Coin, which give digital access to goods and services uh, uh, going forward. Now, the rules will apply to two distinct categories of players in this market, which are actually, you know, mushrooming as we speak uh, and don't fall within any particular harmonized regulatory regime. First of all, issuers, they will have to apply for authorization known as a white paper, 20 days prior to the admission of a national, uh, to an admission of the particular asset, crypto asset, to national regulators who can prohibit the token. If they don't, uh, they can go ahead. Um, but for specifically for asset reference tokens, they will need specific approval, prior approval uh, going forward for the uh, uh, asset reference token and the uh, e-money token direct authorization and supervision will be provided by the eba and a college of national competent authorities an unusual move in my view where up to now the commission was not prepared to give any of the aces any direct supervisory powers but clearly this is what is emerging and then the providers who um would be required to have uh, uh, distinct prior approval by the National Competent Authorities in in the jurisdiction where they are launching their range of activities, whether it be custody, brokerage, trading or investment advice. uh, And from this will be excluded MIFID accredited investment firms. But it doesn't end there. Uh, There are some very strict prudential rules. It comes with something like a sort of a mini- prudential regime of sorts where the crypto asset issuer uh, will have to own and maintain capital funds of at least 350,000 euros or two percent of their total reserve assets whichever is the largest and significant market significant issuers will have to increase this market capitalization Uh, if the uh, market capitalization is in excess of at least 1 billion euros or it can record 500,000 transactions per day of crypto assets. In other words, this will come with maintenance of capital funds equal to at least 3% of the reserve assets uh, uh, that are are provided. For the providers, uh, similar prudential rules, initial capital reserves, but in, in addition, security of the IT infrastructure. There will be a testing regime brought into place under, under DORA. There will be uh, checks by the national competent authorities and potentially also eventually by the ECB uh, down the road uh, to ensure that a robust solid corporate governance structure, independent directors, and last but not the suitability of the management board the fit and proper rules uh, that are normally applied so again a sort of a mini version a micro version of the basel 3 rules applicable to both issuers and uh, providers uh, going uh, forward now this is likely to um, create a certain number of challenges for existing uh, uh, blockchain uh, uh, and crypto asset um, uh, providers uh, who already are regulated in Malta, Gibraltar, and Liechtenstein—they'll have to obviously align themselves with this new regulation. There's also talk about aligning the EU regu- the EU regime with the U.S. federal model, um, where the state banking regulators for the moment are more assertive. And clearly um, the ECB has already been jumping up and down saying we need action on this quicker than, than that by saying, and I quote earlier this year, more exotic market segments such as crypto asset markets will remain subject to speculative bouts of volatility the end of So clearly uh, there is a need to uh, factor in the financial stability uh, issues uh, that need to be uh, taken into account. And the other piece of um, uh, important and, and very controversial uh, legislation of this digital strategy uh, is the EU's Digital Operational Resilience Act for Financial Services. And basically, this means that all critical ICT third providers, uh, including cloud service providers, will be brought under this new regulatory regime, which will consist of You know, imposing a threat led penetration testing of all these uh, third country party providers. Uh, It would also come up, it would also harmonize ICT risk management uh, rules, IC incident classification reporting rules, all of which would ensure, in short, uh, that any um, ICT uh, uh, third party entity uh associated with financial services firms remains in itself financially resilient resilient and can maintain this resilience through a severe i.t operational uh, disruption something that will we'll, i think will come very well uh, with the uh uh with the ecb who has been complaining for many many years long before um, brexit long before the COVID crisis that they were concerned about the disaggregated nature of IT systems in many banks across Europe. Uh, the fact that um, there wasn't enough um, measures taken to prevent and identify and report on uh, uh, um, uh, issues uh, of uh, crypto uh, crypto instances that that occur across
0: Europe. So all of this. Sorry. Yes, yeah, so, sorry, yeah, we're just, uh, just trying to make sure we get enough time for questions, that was all. Yep, yeah,
1: indeed. So next slide, um, we need to run through this fairly quickly. Strengthening anti-money laundering, uh, Now, this is the other game changer. I think uh, you'll have heard me say in the past, many times on these events, um, the, one of the, the least harmonised uh, of any regulatory instrument was the anti-money laundering uh, uh, measures largely because they're left to the hands of national competent authorities. There was little power in the hands of the EPA, the ECB or even national competent authorities to police uh, anti-money laundering compliance on a cross-border basis. The Commission decided to bite the bullet. They're going to create a single standalone EU anti-money laundering agency or authority with oversight powers uh, to have intervention, of uh, uh, of collecting information and also sanctioning powers as well over at least initially some of the more important financial uh, institutions we're talking about maybe 150 financial institutions banks fund managers etc uh, with an AMM policy framework which which will also be um, d- d- drafted to include non-financial entities in the private sector to embrace crypto asset um, services and crowdfunding forms in addition there will also be measures to tighten up on third country so-called high-risk third country jurisdictions there is a separate chapter indeed in the EU European Commission's AML strategy paper which is well worth a read and strengthen beneficial owner, uh, ownership rules as well completing the capital markets union uh, is um, something that has uh, dropped quite uh, noticeably from the uh, the EU uh, um, uh, parlance as it were, obviously because the EU has been more concerned about launching the new uh, generation program of the 800 billion uh, euro, billion euro um, recovery plan, but also dealing with the uh, the the fallout of, of COVID. But clearly, uh, one of the key issues here is reducing the over reliance on. Uh, uh, on um, uh, excessive reliance on, on non-EU providers, but also a focus, uh, a distinct focus away from st- financial stability, towards financing high-growth sectors uh, via non-bank, non-bank funding vehicles. And here, um, it's quite clear that you know the 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 aim is to get institutional investors, uh, private equity. And others to start you know making uh, the, the voice heard in this particular space. The emphasis will be placed on raising funding through equities rather than debt, and indeed the commission are looking at ways of making this perhaps more attractive to the uh, to the to the uh, financial services sector as a whole. It's important to, to to note here that you know as of last year, uh, in terms of GDP, the, the EU financial services sector, as a share of total GDP, was less than half of that of the, of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom, in short, still represents a huge, um, a huge uh, part of the uh, EU share of financial services. To, to give you an example, London, uh, in terms of the share of EU, business and transactions, 84% of derivatives trading, 90% of derivatives clearing, 82% of foreign exchange, and 42% of all assets under management. Uh, So quite clearly, um, you know, and even uh, Commissioner Dubrovskis, the person who oversees the Uh, the whole financial services uh, agenda was to comment late last year and i quote developing deeper capital markets across the 27 member states is neither easy nor quick to do end of quote. that says it all but quite visibly um some emphasis will have to be put on this and the good news of course is that this could be done in tandem hand in hand with the united kingdom we've seen already some very constructive moves by the european commissioner uh, a couple of weeks ago so, um, which uh, are now who announced that there will be an extension to the temporary derivatives clearing uh, equivalency arrangement, which was due to come to an end at the end of June 2022 um, this year, uh, whereby UK CCP's clearing houses can continue to clear uh, derivatives, FX um, swaps and so on. Uh, from the bases in in London on behalf of uh, the 27 EU member uh, stakeholders. So some good news there. Clearly there's an awful lot more to be done Um, and there is, I think, an explicit recognition that this cannot be done alone by the EU. There has to be some degree of cooperation and dialogue, which is sadly missing at the moment. We haven't even got a signed up copy to the MOU on regulatory
0: dialogue. That was supposed to come into place in much of this okay. year. That might be a good time on dialogue just to kind of pause and try and get some of the questions in here and the got about 10 minutes so we may have to be quite uh, short and sharp on a couple of these. Uh, a quick question from Liz Thrussell, is this ICT digital strategy you know part of DORA, the, um, the Digital Operational Resilience Act? Yes it is. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Kind of curious exactly when might the new crypto regulations become effective
1: we're looking at the earliest date is 2024 it could be earlier um, it's gone remarkably smoothly through discussions of the european parliament and the council I, i'd be surprised i don't think we're going to expect the same degree of efficiency when it comes to uh, negotiating the, uh, the the finalization of the 2003 uh, pitch. But um, we, it could be earlier, but earliest I would say January
0: 2024. Um, Malta has uh, traditionally had a, uh, a habit of complying with EU regulation as quickly as possible. It's almost been a selling point to people locating in that jurisdiction. Do you see them doing the same thing in crypto, or are they a bit too far out there because they've been also deep in crypto for a while? So they it's have, almost.
1: They have, back. They have.
0: <laughs> Yeah. I, look, as
1: I said earlier, it's not just Malta. Um, it's also Liechtenstein, uh, Luxembourg, and and uh, and indeed Germany. They are going to have to, over time, align their national crypto asset regimes with the EU package. They'll be given, uh, you know, a transition period in which to do that. So this won't be. This will not be a big bang, but quite visibly, the commission is determined to have one single regime, harmonized rules and not individual sovereign states
0: taking uh, individual initiatives. Okay, Uh, Dan Feony, will EMIs and payment institutions be more severely regulated for more stringent compliance and risk? You know, uh, Dan believes Wirecard really should have been a wake up call that, that collapse in Germany.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and indeed, you know, the ECB uh, will be acquiring some new powers in this space. Not immediately, but very soon. It's already require, acquired powers of uh, uh, systemic important investment firms uh, since uh, June of last year. Uh, third car, third country CCPs, uh, third country benchmark uh, administrators, and yes, uh, EU payment. Um, payment entities of over a certain size uh, potentially will be brought under the remit uh, of the ECB. There are still, I think, um, terms of reference uh, that need to be worked out between the EU, whether the Commission, uh, and the ECB in terms of this going forward. But the answer is a resounding yes, uh, particularly as it dovetails a lot of what I mentioned under the digital strategy, which is to create a digitalised payment space which is safe, uh, which is devoid of any money laundering risks and which is simple and friendly to use. So clearly that will have to the the payment institutions and entities will have to be brought under some form of regulatory
0: uh, framework. Okay, Uh, Martin Watkins is curious, could David comment on the probability of MIFID 2 embracing securities tokens by say this summer?
1: Well, uh, the answer is probably no, because the um, crypto tokens are actually part of this new crypto assets regulation. In other words, everything that doesn't fall under MIFID-2 as eligible assets, and that that has been expanded quite extensively in the last couple of years, will be brought under a separate remit uh, under the um, crypto asset regulation. Um, with, with uh, either as an issuer or as a provider, with the rules that I've just mentioned, which are fairly um, are very intrusive in terms of capital requirements, in terms of uh, governance arrangements, uh, fit and proper rules governing the
0: managers, etc. So it's a different regime to that of, of the method. Okay, Anita Miller. Um, progress on banking union and, by extension, the capital markets union. Uh, needs to be underpinned by a common deposit or insurance regime and corporate solvency regime. Any news on either of those two fronts?
1: No, no. I, I, I think I, I think the EU has pretty much uh, put this on the back burner Up to what, five years of trying to thrash out of an agreement. Uh, there is still this dichotomy, divergence of views between the, Europe, the northern European countries and the southern European countries. That doesn't seem to be uh, at all bridged in, even during the last discussions. So I, I guess that will probably not be a priority going forward. There are more important things happening, such as the crypto asset um, uh, space, uh, such as the DeFi, the decentralized finance area, which represent much more important uh, financial stability risks uh, than the
0: uh, deposit guarantee scheme at bank level. Mm. Um, Hugh Purser, again, strategic autonomy, does the non-EU really mean London or is the target genuinely global? He's
1: referring to the EU here. Well, I think the answer is, is blatantly, for me it's blatantly obvious, even if it's not expressed in those terms. The statistics I quoted uh, earlier uh, 84% of derivatives trading, 90% of derivatives clearing, uh, 84% of FX trades, um, the, the bulk of uh, IPOs that t- continue to take place in London on behalf of the rest of Europe, I think, are testimony to the fact that yes, the EU continues to need uh, and to rely on London City, you know, uh, given its uh, its particular its its ecosystem. Uh, which it's built up over the over many years. And there's a couple of other factors that are contributing to this. One has been discovered in over the last couple of months in trying to, in, with the regulators like the EU and, and the ECB, trying to encourage and even force um, a relocation of uh, uh, of derivatives clearing to one of the 27 EU member states, particularly in, in those that are EU, EURO denominated, I think it's probably failed simply because the uh, institutional capacity on mainland Europe and the liquidity uh, factors don't exist at the moment. It'll take many, many years to build these up. So yes, I think um, the EU will continue to rely on London. Again, my personal view is that it's a pity that this is not happening in the context of uh, collegial uh, exchanges of views under the auspices of this MOU on regulatory dialogue, which would, I think, have provided a basis, as it does, um, incidentally, uh, for EU and the US going back at least a decade, uh, and would have provided a basis for some sensible uh, uh, compromises uh, going
0: forward. Okay, Got a lot of questions here, and I also want to just quickly run that poll in the three minutes available, but uh, just very quickly. Andrew John Mills had a point very early on, and I, and I held it a, a, a bit. Uh, And uh, to some degree, I think it's because we had Anu Bradford on from Columbia last year on the Brussels effect, Um, and if you could keep it short, but whatever one's view of the EU's regulatory philosophy, would David agree that by putting themselves at the cutting edge of interventionism, they are effectively setting the agenda for regulation across much of the non-Chinese world? And if so, what are the implications for other regulatory spheres, US, NAFTA, UK, Switzerland, is the eu really driving the regulation from here on in your opinion
1: yeah yeah certainly where we stand today in terms of the digital the um, sustainable finance agenda um, uh, they are driving and of course the aml uh, strategy as well they are very definitely setting an international benchmark uh, which means that you know uh, non-eu regions like china and elsewhere don't necessarily have to follow this but if they want to operate uh, um optimally across the in any one eu member state or across the 27 EU member states they will need to apply these rules
0: okay there will be no exceptions well we've got a lot of comments uh, leave a low it on you know whether or not the SAI review as is, is a non-critical piece of financial services legislation dan fiani again would love to Chat more about uh, the importance of the digital identity framework. Are we getting closer to something like Estonia? Martin Watkins again on the uh, microcredit assets. Uh, sorry, crypto asset stuff. Um, Abel Awe on the. Uh, Abel, sorry, my apologies. Abelabo on the EUAI strategy. And Ian Sheridan uh, looking at kind of also the influence of all this on WIPO. So a lot of discussion we could have. Uh, but what I'm going to do, if you don't mind, is I'm asking Peter to just launch that poll there. Uh, and while it's being answered, David, would you mind? There you are in Paris, you know, you're in the heart of the scene. Uh, and when you're not having a wonderful lunch, what, 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 what's, what's the Parisian view of Brexit and its effect on UK financial services, on UK financial services?
1: Well, we're still in a, a period of... Um... Acrimony, uh, as you would normally associate with any divorce, it was a very acrimonious divorce. There was a sense in France, shared in other capitals in Europe, um, that um, uh, the United Kingdom had abandoned the EU, uh, that it was perhaps an unreliable partner, fickle, etc., um, etc. Et so there still is this uh, sadly this lingering. Um, perception Uh, but you know uh, this has dissipated in particularly in the last 18 months Uh, you know you don't see much about this when you read Le Figaro or Le Monde any day what you're looking at is how are we going to deal with running up to the elections this April which Mm -hmm. are which are poised to be very uh, controversial issues like uh, uh, immigration issues like dealing with COVID uh, uh, strategic autonomy vis-a-vis the french frontiers they're the issues um, that are most pressing for the french electorate
0: I, I think you've done something really good david you can see here that you've moved about seven percent of the group i <laughs> think it's a good effect and i think anybody uh listening to the fact that the, we, we <laughs> we're out of some of the uh, some of the things that you were chatting about i think has left maybe we are better off a little bit away from all that Hey, David, it is always a delight to have you. You've got so much content, and we really appreciate you sharing it with us. Uh, loads of questions here. They will all be sent to you with emails attached, so you can answer them if you wish. Uh, but sadly, at this point, I have to say goodbye. I will get out our now traditional non-EU, uh, non-EU <laughs> audience thank you note and say, <laughs> our friend, our friend clapper, thanks you. And we hope to have you back, and not next January, hopefully sometime before that as well. Thank you no, so much. You thank you. you. you Bye.
1: Thank you.